As Nate has just mentioned, we are about to start a new sermon series. Last week, we celebrated the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Today, we start a new series looking at the book of Acts. And Acts is basically the story of what happened next. What happened after Jesus rose and ascended? But I just want to take a slight detour at the beginning and ask a question. Why should we study a book of the Bible? Isn't it a bit dry and a bit dull and a bit, uh, you know, old-fashioned? Wouldn't it be way more exciting to discuss some intriguing new teaching that we'd seen on YouTube or to share some sort of comforting and encouraging messages that we got from WhatsApp. Wouldn't that be a bit more relevant to our time? But actually, you know, when you think about our time, we live in an age of information overload. There are so many things with which we can fill our thoughts and our lives, constantly coming at us from all directions. But not all of them are true, and not all of them are helpful. And actually, how do we know what is true? How do we keep our focus right in this day of information bombardment? And I would say that actually, the way to do it is to keep our focus on God's Word not just as an academic study, but as a way of hearing from God, of experiencing his presence, and of growing in our faith and our understanding. That's why God gave us the Bible. And you know, God's word carries his authority. It's true, we can trust it. It becomes the thing against which we can measure all other messages. And as you know, if you've had a look at the internet, there are a lot of other messages. And we do need discernment. God's word contains everything that we need to grow in our spiritual lives. So, the book of Acts. The book of Acts is a unique and exciting book. I'm excited as we start this series, and I hope you all will be too. It's unique because it's the only early account that we have of the birth and growth of the Christian church from approximately 33 AD to 63 AD, that 30-year period, a crucial period. And without the book of Acts, we would have no historical context to help us understand the rest of the New Testament. For instance, imagine we didn't have Acts, and somebody said to you, who is this guy Paul? And who are the Corinthians? And, you know, why should I read this letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthians? What's the relevance of it? We would have no, we wouldn't have a clue. Uh, Acts gives us a historical background for the rest of the New Testament to understand the different characters and who they are and the part they play. 
it's also exciting. Acts is a sort of adventure story. It's full of action, danger, miracles, and the spectacular growth of the Jesus movement. At the beginning of Acts, we see Jesus' disciples as a small and fearful group in, in an upper room, hiding for fear of arrest and, um, <clears throat> and execution. But by the end, we see that faith in Jesus has spread all over the Roman Empire, among Gentiles as well as Jews, and it spread even to the center of imperial power in Rome. And we even know that there were members of Caesar's household who had become Christians. That's what happened in that 30-year period. So, coming to this Bible passage we had, Acts 1 to 11, it's an introduction. And as an introduction, it's full of clues and pointers and information about the book of Acts. So what can we learn as we just look at the passage? I'll redo the first two verses. In my former book, O Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. So, if you knew nothing about the book of Acts, what could you glean from that? Well, you could ask the question, he's referring to a former book about Jesus. What could that be? Well, probably a gospel. So you could go back and you could have a look at the four gospels. And when you get to the gospel of Luke, you'd find a resonance. Here's how Luke's gospel begins. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things that you've been taught. Now, it doesn't take a genius to actually see a connection between those two passages, the intro to Luke and the intro to the book of Acts. So Acts is Luke part two. And it's about, as the gospel of Luke is about what Jesus began to do and teach, the book of Acts is about what Jesus continued to do, not this time in person, but through the work of the Holy Spirit to guide and empower his chosen apostles and to help them continue the work that he started. That's in a way what, what Acts is about. So, the other thing we can glean is that Luke is a careful investigator. He, at the beginning of Luke's gospel, he, he lays out his approach. He himself was not an eyewitness, but he met eyewitnesses, he wrote it all down, he did his research, and he put it together. It's a collection of eyewitness testimony. It's truth. But... The next question you may ask is, who, who was Luke? You know his name from the gospel, but actually the gospel doesn't contain his name. All four, all four gospels, as you know, are anonymous. They don't identify their authors. That has to be 
a bit of historical research that happens. But if you do a bit of digging in a good study Bible, you'll turn up a bit of information about Luke. Luke was a Greek. He was the only Gentile author of a New Testament book. All the other books in the New Testament were written by Jews. Luke and Acts were written by a Greek called Luke. Also, he was well-educated. You can even, well, I don't read Greek, but those who can tell us, I mean, classical scholars are very impressed with the literary quality of his Greek. It's by far the best written book, uh, that Luke and Acts are by far the best written books in terms of their quality of the Greek in the whole of the New Testament. Other books are written in Koine Greek, which is a sort of ordinary common Greek. Luke and Acts are written in good classical quality Greek. Another group of people who are impressed with Luke are ancient historians and archaeologists. They're very impressed with the quality and accuracy of his, of his historical details. Luke is a good historian and he's done his research properly. Also, we know that Luke is a doctor. Paul refers to him like as a physician, a medical doctor. In Colossians 4.14, Paul writes, Our dear friend Luke, the doctor, and Demas send greetings. Also, what we'll discover during the book of Acts is that Acts was not only a result of careful historical investigation, but also of some personal experience. In the book of Acts, Luke appears and travels around with Paul. And so some of what is he, he records is as a result of being there and of talking to the people. You know, we don't know when, how and when Luke became a follower of Jesus, but we do know that he did quite a lot of accompanying Paul on his travels. There are things called the we sections in Acts that if you follow them, you know that during Paul's second missionary journey, Luke joined Paul in Troas and then traveled with him to Macedonia and Philippi. You learn it from the personal pronouns. So, for instance, let me just read Acts 16, 8 to 10. This is about Paul and his traveling companions. So they passed by Mysia and went down to Troas. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So you see there's a change from they, they did this, they did that, to we and us. Paul has joined, uh, uh, Luke has joined Paul. And if you also um, follow the trail of these we sections, you discover that at the end of Paul's third missionary journey, Luke accompanied Paul back to Jerusalem via Philippi and, from Philippi, going via Miletus and Caesarea. And then after Paul's arrest in Jerusalem, Luke was with Paul at Caesarea and then accompanied him 
on that long sea voyage to Rome on which they got shipwrecked near the end. So, Luke was with Paul for, that, for those times. We also got some extra clues from Paul's letters. For instance, in the book of Philemon, Paul includes Luke in a list of his co-workers. He says, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends you greetings, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. And we also learn from 2 Timothy, which was Paul's last letter, written just shortly before his death, that Luke was with him in his last days in Rome. Paul writes this, Only Luke is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, because he's helpful to me in my ministry. Only Luke is with me. So when you think about all of Luke's travels and his time with Paul, it's pretty obvious that he would have had plenty of time to do his historical research, to meet the eyewitnesses to the life of Jesus, and to meet the key players in the growth of the Christian church, and to collect all sorts of information um, that would help him as he wrote Luke and then Acts. In fact, he spent some time in Caesarea uh, with Philip, and that's probably where he got the, the story of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, you know, and the other uh, details about Philip in Samaria. So, last little question to ask, who is Theophilus? Anybody know? He appears twice, surely we should know. Well, the fact is nobody knows, but there are three guesses that people have had. I'll tell you what they are. Um, the name Theophilus means one who loves God. Some people have speculated that he was an important Roman official who had become a secret follower of Jesus. Luke talks about him as most excellent Theophilus, which is how you would address, address it, like a tribune or someone. Um, others speculate that he may be a wealthy Greek patron who had sponsored the production and the creation of Luke and Acts. And others think it's a general term addressing all Christians, those who love God, who want to learn about the background to their faith. So I think we can take it in that third sense. It's to us. We're all Theophilus, okay? We want to learn about it. You know, given Luke's quality as a writer, it's not surprising that Acts 1 to 11 is a skillfully written introduction to the whole of the rest of Acts. And it introduces five themes which recur through the whole of the book of Acts, in fact, through the whole of the New Testament, in the preaching and in the witness of the apostles and the first disciples. And I'm just going to whiz through these five themes, and it'd be good if you could try to remember them, because they'll come in useful for the rest of the sermon series. In verse 3, we read this. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. So that introduces the first theme, the resurrection of Jesus. And it, you find all the way through Acts, in the early teaching of the, of the, of the apostles and the disciples, the resurrection is a key focus for them. 
And I'll give you a couple of examples. For instance, when Peter was talking to this large crowd of people who gathered in Cornelius' house wanting to know uh, about the Christian faith, Peter says this, they killed him by hanging him on a cross, but God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. Um, later in, in the book of Acts, we, we have Paul, Paul preaching in a Jewish synagogue in Pisidian Antioch. Paul speaking to a sort of slightly hostile and inquisitive audience said this, though they found no proper ground for a death sentence, they asked Pilate to have him executed. When they'd carried out all that was written about him, they took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead, and for many days he was seen by those who had traveled with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. So that's the first theme, the resurrection, a key bit of all the proclamation of the early, of the early church. The second theme that we see in the introduction is the baptism with the Holy Spirit. So we see it in verses four and five. Jesus said, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father has promised, which you've heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And so of course, the immediate fulfillment of that was in Acts 2, the day of Pentecost. But then as you go on through the, through the book of Acts, through the New Testament, you see again and again this theme that it was gonna be a common Christian experience to be, to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. For instance, when the Samaritans heard the gospel and believed, uh, the early church sent Peter and John to Samaria. When they arrived, they prayed for the new believers there that they might receive the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them. They'd simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Also, not just groups and communities, but individuals like Saul of Tarsus, when he encountered the risen Lord Jesus on the road to Damascus and was blinded. He went into Damascus and was sort of praying and, and uh, waiting. And a very brave disciple named Ananias came to pray for him. This is the good Ananias. There is a bad Ananias in the New Testament, Don't, in, the, in Acts. Don't get confused. This is the good guy. He was a brave disciple and he said, Brother Saul, the Lord, Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized and after taking some food, he regained his strength. So that's the second big theme, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. The third one, the Great Commission, the commission to be witnesses to Jesus. We see it in verse eight. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And actually that verse is almost a blueprint for the rest of Acts. During the whole of the book of Acts we see the story of how the first disciples filled with power and boldness from the Holy Spirit proclaimed the good news of Jesus fearlessly throughout the, the Roman Empire. They followed 
and obeyed Jesus' commands to be his witnesses, and they did it in the power of the Holy Spirit. The fourth theme, the ascension. This is in verse 9. After he had said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. You know, there are only two descriptions of Jesus' ascension in the New Testament. One is in the Gospel of Luke, and one is at the beginning of Acts here. But the ascension is hugely important in the faith and proclamation of the early disciples. We don't seem to say much about it nowadays, but it was important to them. For instance, when Peter was talking to the crowd on the day of Pentecost, he said this, God has raised this Jesus to life, and we're all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. And when Stephen was on trial for his life before the Sanhedrin, we read this, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. You know, this vision of the risen and ascended Lord Jesus standing at the right hand of God the Father and ruling in glory and power goes back to a very famous uh, prophecy in the book of Daniel, which has resonances throughout the New Testament. Do you, anyone know that prophecy? Maybe, maybe not. I'll read it to you. Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. And that prophecy is a vision that the early church kept in mind. Jesus was ascended, glorified, at the right hand of God. It was also, that prophecy was the basis for the charge of blasphemy at Jesus' trial before the Sanhedrin. You know, Jesus was tried and found guilty of blasphemy, and that's why they handed him over to Pilate for crucifixion. The high priest asked him, are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed one? I am, said Jesus, and you will see the son of man sitting at the right hand of the mighty one and coming on the clouds of heaven. The high priest tore his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses, he said. You've heard the blasphemy. What do you think? They all condemned him as worthy of death. A key part of the church's proclamation is Jesus arisen at the right hand of the Father and returning. And that's the fifth theme that we find in verses 10 to 11. The promise that Jesus will return. Verses 10 to 11 read like this. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? The same Jesus who's been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way that you've seen him go into heaven. 
And that has been the hope of the church all the way through Acts, the New Testament, and right up to the present. For instance, when, people, when Peter was talking to the crowd in the temple after he, he and John had healed the crippled man, he said, repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord, and that may, he may send the Messiah who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. Heaven must receive him until the time comes for God to restore everything as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. We see it beyond the book of Acts. We see it in the writing of Paul. Paul wrote to the to Thessalonians, for the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God and the dead in Christ will rise. And John, the apostle John, in prison on the island of Patmos, writing the book of Revelation, wrote this. Look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all peoples on earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. So those five themes run through the book of Acts and through the, through the whole of the New Testament. And I hope that as we study Acts, it'll be an encouragement to imitate the faith of those first disciples, the early church, and that our witness will have as much impact on the community that we live in as theirs did. I hope so. And as we study, our, as we start our study of Acts, my prayer for all of us is that we would learn from that great cloud of witnesses that we read about, who have gone before us, that we would learn to reject the trivial and the false, that we would focus on what is important and true, and that we would deepen our, work with, our walk with God. Let's pray.